Right. Middle East Forums webinar series, Israel Insider with Mr. Ashley Perry. I'm Stacy McKenna, and I will be moderating today's discussion. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each week to update us on everything Israeli. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for roughly 10 to 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen. We'll do our best to get to all questions, but we have many participants on this webinar, so I apologize in advance if we do not get to yours today. And now, with no further ado, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and happy Israel Independence Day for all those who are celebrating. Um, it's coming to the end of uh, Independence Day here in Israel. It's already 10 o'clock, so it's already nighttime. Um, but I know around the world you're still celebrating. Uh, today we're going to do something a little bit different. Rather than talking about the week's events, there is actually quite a lot to talk about. We're going to talk a little bit about what the future looks as Israel celebrates its 72nd birthday. Um, but I think before we go into the future, let's take a little peek into the past because I think always there needs to be a little bit of context um, when we start to consider, does Israel have an optimistic future, a pessimistic future? First of all, if we look at the past and we put it into context, Israel is a record of achievement. If we look back 72 years ago, when Israel was first, let's say, re-established or Jewish sovereignty was re-established in the Jewish people's ancestral and indigenous homeland, um, it, it, it was a remarkable feat because we had people coming from over 100 countries with dozens of different languages, multiple cultures, all creating this melting pot, which became the arguably only democracy in the region, certainly the strongest democracy in the region. And if you go a little bit further afield, Israel uh, reclaimed, or the Jewish people reclaimed its sovereignty around the same time as many other countries around the world threw off uh, colonial rule, especially if you look in Africa. And if you compare some of those countries which threw off colonial rule, you know, six, seven decades ago uh, with Israel, there's very little comparison. Israel is an OECD member. It is also a country which has not known a minute of peace. It's constantly attacked, whether it's by armies, uh, by irregular armies, by terrorism, um, by, you know, uh, uh, economic warfare, uh, you know, now BDS warfare, uh, legal warfare, pretty much everything. And if you look today, Israel is one of the strongest countries in the world. Um, you know, it's, it just really is, you know, I always talk, uh, you know, when people say, you know, Israel is this, Israel is that, criticize Israel. Absolutely, we should be able to, and we should do. And especially in Israel, we have a very robust uh, democracy. But my father, who, you know, was born at the end of the First World War and lived through the Second World War, the Holocaust, et cetera, et cetera. He always used to say to us growing up, he said, you don't understand, you don't remember living in a world where Israel didn't exist. And most of us, that's true. Certainly if you're below the age of 72 or 73 or whatever it is, you don't remember uh, a, a time where Israel didn't exist. So today in 2020, we look back, we think to ourselves, Israel is, 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 is really has, an amazing success story. So the question is, where do we go from here? And I'm gonna talk a little bit about the good and the bad of what I see in the next 10, 20 years. First of all, Israel, there was, a, there was a, a extremely positive survey which was released a couple of days ago, 
Every year around um, Yom Ha'atzmaut, Israeli Independence Day, they survey Israeli citizens for the Israel Democracy Institute. How do you, excuse me, how do you feel about Israel? How do you feel about being Israeli? And what we saw was something remarkable. First of all, there's always a strong sense of solidarity uh, in Israel amongst the average citizen. People really do feel that their destiny is tied up in the country and they do feel some uh, close-knit uh, partnership or brotherliness uh, amongst uh, Israeli citizens. But what was remarkable this year is there's two communities which were always sort of lower than the average, and that is the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community and the Arab community. Both communities from 2019 jumped 35 points. The Arab community on average last year, when they were asked, do you feel solidarity with Israel? Do you feel your destiny is caught up in this state? Something like 44% said yes. This year, was, I think it was 78, 79%. The ultra-Orthodox community won 68%. This year, it's 92%. Now, those who understand Israeli society understand that these are remarkable numbers because these are two communities that do feel on the outside. And you could argue during coronavirus, there's been a highlight of how much they've been outside the norm uh, to a certain extent um, with you know, battling the coronavirus. Um, but there's obviously overwhelming support for feeling a part of the state of Israel. And I think that's extremely positive because, you know, we, we always talk about the divisions in Israeli society, but here are pretty much every single Israeli community saying, we want to be part of this. We want full partnership. So that's extremely positive. The second thing is, you know, we're about to go into probably one of the most uh, uh, in state, uh, you know, a lack, there's going to be a, a, a strong lack of stability around the world. I predict, and, and I work with a lot of governments around the world, that they'll, you know, the, the incumbents, the current presidents, prime ministers, leaders, will get blamed eventually uh, for what's going on because that's the way it works during crises. Uh, I think I've talked about this before. You know, at the beginning, there's this sort of, you know, uh, standing around the flag, solidarity, coming together. But the longer a crisis, uh, you know, takes time to recover the more there is a there's there's a anti-disestablishment feeling and usually the leaders get blamed for that so i think uh you know we're, we're going to see that all around the world and we're certainly going to see that uh in israel um but one thing that israel definitely has and probably allows will allow it to recover uh, relatively quickly is israel is is a land of innovation and we've all heard of the startup nation etc cetera, etc cetera. but what that means is that you know, we don't have that much productivity in terms of something uh, physical. You know, there's a lot of countries, you know, China, you know, most of our products today are made by China. So obviously there's a way of, you know, buying or not buying. Israel's greatest natural resource is here. It's, it's, in, it's in the brain. It's our ability to constantly innovate and invent. Uh, and because of that, first of all, this is one of the deep uh, problems that the BDS movement has because when they ask people to uh, boycott Israeli products, it's almost impossible because it, first of all, Israeli products are in everything. If you're watching this on a computer, if you're watching this on a phone, the likelihood is you're using Israeli technology and all those people involved in BDS use Israeli technology day and night, whether they know it or they don't. Um, but moreover, you know, it's, it's intellectual uh, commodities which Israel is selling. One of the things when I worked with the agriculture minister, just to give you an example, a number of years ago, 
whenever we would have a foreign guest come in, and even when it wasn't necessarily an agricultural minister, we'd bring them to this place called the Volcani Institute, which is actually on the uh, Ministry of Agriculture's massive campus where they have farmlands, et cetera, where they try and test different uh, crops and different technologies. And what Israel is able to demonstrate, especially these people from what used to be called the third world, from Africa, Asia, Latin America, is Israel is able to grow almost any crop during any season. Moreover, Israel is able to play with some of these uh, uh, ideas of you know, farming, ingenuity, and innovation to allow people, uh, poor farmers or poor countries, to be able to get better crops. Uh, you know, just one of the examples, I mean, this is not necessarily to do with uh, poorer nations, but one of the things that people were amazed by is Israel developed um, a seedless tomato. Now, why is a seedless tomato so interesting? Uh, because it saves the ketchup industry hundreds of millions of dollars every year. Apparently, I didn't even know this. It's one of the most uh, expensive parts of the process is taking the seeds out of the tomato to make tomato ketchup. We were able to save, or we we're able to save the ketchup industry hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars every year. And that's just from Israel innovation. So, you know, these are the, these are the sort of areas that, are, you know, fill everyone who understands this with, with optimism that Israel will remain at the forefront uh, economically, uh, as far as innovation, as far as, you know, contributing uh, to mankind. We was used to say in the agriculture ministry, we can't be the granary for the world but we can certainly come in and help people improve the way that they uh, you know, create food and get them to the consumers. So these, these are really two uh, areas where I see a lot of optimism. A little bit on the pessimistic side, I would argue certainly in the last few years that Israel has lost to a certain extent its military deterrence. And why do I say that? Because if you look at our enemies around the world, um, whether it's Iran, Syria, in Syria, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, Hamas, certainly our weakest foe enemy is Hamas. I mean, Hamas doesn't even compare to Hezbollah, which doesn't even compare to Iran. But in the last few years, we fought many battles against Hamas and we have not been able to defeat them. We've been able to push them back. We've certainly been able to uh, deal a, a, a strong blow to them. But at the end of the day, they were still standing at the end of each and every conflict. And when they continue to rain rockets down on us, as they do every few months, our response is relatively limp, or it can be relatively limp. And it basically allows Hamas to declare at the end of each sort of sortie victory. And what do you think the Ayatollahs in uh, Tehran are thinking? What do you think Hassan Nasrallah in Beirut is thinking if he sees the great Israeli army where we spend billions of dollars every year on the greatest weaponry and technology that we could basically not be defeated by any uh, you know, sort of army. And then we see Hamas constantly bombarding our towns with uh, a very weak response. So I think they see that and that's why they feel that they're able to take advantage of that. And I think we do have a new chief of staff um, who is starting to talk a different language. If many of the previous uh, chief of staffs were talking about, let's just you know, uh, battle Hamas until we can get to a nice ceasefire and we can dictate terms or not dictate terms or come to terms where we can have another six months of quiet until the next round. We have a chief of staff now who's talking about victory, who's talking about dealing a very strong, even mortal blow to 
organizations like Hamas. But until this happens in real time, I would say that we're, we're not seen as strongly as some might, uh, some might and should uh, be seeing as uh, enemies around the world. So it could be at some point in the future, we will have to deal, you know, a blow, a very strong blow to organizations like Hamas. And we cannot allow this message that you can throw rockets day and night, allow hundreds of thousands of our citizens to sleep in uh, secure rooms and allow life not to not to continue. You know, we're all sitting today in our homes and we're not really going out. But this happens to many residents of Israel South every few months and it's intolerable. No other nation can and should tolerate it. So Israel certainly shouldn't. And the final thing is we have a system in Israel, again, going back to, we talked about solidarity, different groups. We have in Israel an unequal and uneven contribution into society. What that means is that there are certain groups numbering uh, high percentages who are basically not contributing as much as others. And they are still receiving uh, the same benefits as others. And I think this is something which is just unsustainable in, a long, in, in the long road. And I don't blame the communities for this. What I do blame is the political leaders because the political leaders fight for this and they push for this. And it becomes an intolerable situation where it becomes more beneficial to you to remain unemployed, uh, to get the benefits, uh, whatever they may be, whether they are uh, funding, whether they are, uh, you know, you don't have to pay for certain other things that other Israelis would. And today it's sustainable because these numbers are relatively small, but I believe in 10 or 20% with the demographics, and I'm referring here, but not only to the ultra-Orthodox and the Arab communities, they will become uh, unsustainable because those two communities alone, within 50 or something years, they could become 50% around of Israeli society. So that means the burden on the rest of society, socially, in terms of serving their country in the army or, or national service, or in terms of tax contribution will become unsustainable. But as I said before, I think things are changing amongst both of these communities. There is a stronger sense of wanting to become more Israeli, wanting to contribute, wanting to serve uh, in the army. There are more ultra-Orthodox certainly, and even Arabs, especially uh, Christian Arabs or Jews who do consider themselves Arab, who are serving the country, who are full uh, contributors to the Israeli economy. But we have to look at this a little bit longer term because in 10 years, it may be too difficult to, to make these changes. Um, and finally, at the root of all of Israel's challenges, and I've spoken about this a little bit before, is Israel's political system. I spoke to my colleagues in, in government and parliament at least 10, 20 years ago about the fact that Israel's political system will be moving towards paralysis. And we've quite simply seen that in the last year and a half. If after this year and a half of just basic political uh, uh, and parliamentary paralysis, if we don't make those necessary changes, they will be at the root of all our challenges, whether they are political, security, diplomatic, economic, it really doesn't matter what. If we do not deal with these uh, political challenges, if we don't uh, equalize the system, if we don't make it more governable, then I think we're, you know, what we see in the last year and a half will just be the, the tip of the iceberg. Um, so with that, I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have on this or any events that are happening in Israel. Great, thank you, Mr. Perry. 
How has the BDS movement affected things in Israel and its exports? And along those lines, have the supply chains been interrupted from COVID like they have in the United States? Well, let me tell you, uh, in, in absolute numbers, BDS has had no effect, not even a minimal effect, no effect on, on Israel's economy. I mean, there have been many uh, surveys on this. And as I said, because large parts of the Israeli economy is predicated on intellectual property, it's almost impossible to boycott. In fact, our economy is growing exponentially every single year, obviously. With COVID, like every country in the world, it's going to shrink. But before that, our economy was growing, our trade with every single country, especially, by the way, interestingly enough, if you look at the countries where BDS is strongest, uh, arguably Western Europe, uh, parts of the US, trade has just gone through the roof. You know, it, it just doubles itself every couple of years. So BDS may be winning some hearts and minds on campuses and other areas, maybe in the arts, culture, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in real economic terms, it's had no effect. Even in cultural terms, I mean, the amount of uh, bands and artists who were supposed to come to Israel this summer, obviously everything's been canceled. Um, but, you know, it really does, hasn't had effect. Every now and again, you hear someone who cancels, usually because they're threatened and they see the uh, vitriol the abuse that they receive on Twitter. But it's extremely, extremely rare that an artist refuses to come to Israel on so-called moral grounds. So BDS up until this point has been a failure. It is may changing some hearts and minds, especially as I said, on campuses and amongst youth. So, you know, the, the jury's out in the future, but I, I, I don't see long-term BDS being a, a threat uh, to Israel's economy. Um, as far as the, what was the question? As far as the uh, as, as COVID? Supply chains, right now we're seeing like the, the meatpacking industry shut down and um, milk being spilled. So along those lines, right. do you have anything? No, I mean, there was at one point early on uh, an egg shortage and some other uh, commodities. What's interesting, uh, I didn't mention uh, in the survey at the beginning, but what's fascinating at the beginning of this uh, crisis, the COVID crisis, there was something like, I, I believe, 850,000 Israeli citizens living abroad. Um, and in just the last six weeks, something like 550,000 of them have come home. Now, we're not just talking about people who are on, uh, you know, vacation or they're on, you know, after the army trips around the world. There are people who haven't lived in Israel for years and they've realized that this is one of the best places to be during this uh, COVID crisis. So what that means also, especially around Passover, where, you know, something like a million Israelis go abroad, not only did they not go abroad, but you had many, many Israelis coming into Israel. So you did have a certain amount of shortage uh, at that time. But on the whole, the supermarkets are well stocked, even if you sometimes have to wait in long lines because there's a limit for people, uh, the amount of people who can go into them. But I was in a supermarket the other day, extremely well stocked. I haven't really seen anything that, uh, that we're lacking at this point. Who knows what will happen in the future, but that hasn't, uh, there hasn't been a lack at this point. Thank you. Is the two-state solution going by the wayside as annexation and hopefully better humanitarian solutions get more consideration? It's a good question. Um, the two-state solution, first of all, you need a partner. And Israel hasn't had a partner for many years. I mean, 
a Palestinian leader has not even agreed to sit in the same room as an Israeli leader since I believe it was 2008. Maybe I'm wrong, uh, but for, for many, many years. So don't forget, and I think I've mentioned this in previous uh, webinar, that there are Israeli teenagers, late teens, early 20s, who do not remember seeing an Israeli leader and a Palestinian leader sit down, hold a press conference together, shake hands, embrace, just whatever it is. So, you know, the, the, the so-called peace process, the, the two-state solution is just something which doesn't seem that it's even serious or likely until a Palestinian leader says, enough, I'm going to sit in the room, I'm going to uh, meet with uh, my Israeli counterparts, I'm going to discuss peace, I'm going to discuss the best ways to get to this, and I'm going to enlist the international community to assist with that effort. We do not have a Palestinian leadership, anything close to what I've just enunciated. So the question is just a moot point at this, uh, at this point in time, because the Palestinian leadership does not seem at all interested in a two-state solution. So until that time, I think it's just a moot point. And uh, we'll see what happens as far as all these other plans, like the Trump peace plan. We'll see what happens, because there's so much for the Palestinian people to gain from this. And I feel most sorry for the Palestinian people, because Israel's doing pretty well, as I said, economically, socially, diplomatically. We're, we're doing very, very well. It's the Palestinian people that are suffering because of their leaders' violent rejection. And until that ends, there can be no real serious talk of peace or two-state solution. Thank you. We have uh, another question in. The U.S. recently approved the sale of 11 air refueling aircrafts to Israel. What message did Iran's decision makers get? And secondly, under what conditions would Israel unilaterally strike Iran's nuclear infrastructure with or without U.S. support? Well, it's, it's very hard to answer the second one. Um, there are obviously people with far greater access to the security and military details of what's going on who would be able to answer that question. But it's clear, you know, we've had leaders who have said that we cannot allow Iran to have a fully functional or even something close to that uh, nuclear weapon because we know where that would be pointed. By the way, not just Israel, many of the Sunni nations in the region would be probably threatened if not before Israel. So there's a lot to lose, especially with American allies like Saudi Arabia, et cetera. So I think Iran knows that they're playing with power. Um, I, you know, everybody is aware of Israel and the US's uh, military strategic partnership, which really serves both interests and is based on our shared values. Um, but I think more telling is the response of the international community. You know, we've already heard the US's response, but the response of the uh, international community to what Iran is doing currently with its launching of satellites, it's moving way, way beyond what was agreed to in the JCPOA. Um, and there's now a sort of diplomatic aim to see whether sanctions can be snapped back um, as a result of what Iran is doing at the moment. So I think that's very telling, but I don't think there's, you know, what, what's great I think in the last couple of years is there really is no daylight between the American uh, uh, and the Israeli position. When I was in government uh, a number of years ago, there was a certain amount of daylight. And it, interestingly enough, to me at least, some of the Western European countries were far more bellicose and uh, aggressive towards Iran than the Americans were. Uh, that certainly changed over the last few years, and that's certainly welcome from the Israeli point of view. 
So it remains to be seen exactly what happens. But I think that a lot of nations are getting very tired with what Iran is doing. But there's still economic interest, there's still strategic interest from certain Europeans. But there has to be a message to the Iran, enough is enough. And that message hasn't been sent yet, but hopefully uh, at some point soon it will. Thank you. Can you comment about India and Israel relations? It would appear there are many similarities. One is large, another small, but they were both under British colonial rule, division of country, hostile neighbors, large Muslim minority populations. Do they seem to be drawing closer? Yes. I mean, if you look at the history of uh, India, originally after, um, after independence with the Nehru regime, it was very hostile to Israel partly because it was in what used to be called the non-aligned uh, nations at the UN, and there was this uh, pan-Arabist um, sort of uh, attitude amongst the Indian government, which survived for, for many, many years. And still, to a certain extent, you can still see it in international forums like the UN. But over the last uh, few years, especially with a more Hindu nationalist uh, government, uh, with, uh, with uh, Modi's government, relations are extremely good on all levels um, when the the fascinating thing for me is when when we came into the foreign ministry in 2009 most of the departments the geographic departments were really i wouldn't say sitting on their hands but they weren't working very hard because there was such an emphasis on the us on western europe and on the region that basically africa sub-saharan africa asia uh, latin america and many other places around the world were basically being ignored. They weren't getting the attention. And one thing that, you know, the foreign minister, Victor Liebman at the time, who I happened to work for, he started getting everybody working. We started moving. You know, one of, one of the first trips that we made was to Brazil. Brazil is one of the most important economies around the world. And the first meeting, we sat down with the foreign minister, and the first question that he asked is, where have you been? You know, this was 2009, he said, for 16 years, not a single senior Israeli government minister has visited our country. And that's absurd. And I think if you look back 16 years from 2009, that's 1993. So ever since Oslo, ever since this idea that, you know, peace can be made and everything can be focused on that, you know, we, we've ignored many of our partners around the world. But I'm glad in the last few years that we've refocused Prime Minister Netanyahu, Foreign Minister Victor Liebman, to many other countries of the world, in India and China, Sub-Saharan Africa, we're returning to these places and we are receiving absolute a warm embrace in all of these countries. So, you know, that, that's, a, that's another reason to be extremely optimistic because our diplomatic relations are flourishing at all levels. Wonderful, thank you. So this will probably be our last question of this webinar this week. When you talk about ending the paralysis in Israel's political system, what do you have in mind? A drastically different system? Well, if you look at the world today, we have, for example, two extremes. We have complete governability. And what do I mean by that? We have nations like North Korea, where one leader says that they want something to happen and it happens. There's no parliament, there's no oversight, there's no system of checks and balances. That's complete governance and a lack of represent a representation. Israel is probably all the way at the other side, where we have complete representation, or almost, um, because we have proportional representation and we have a very low threshold. But because of that, we have very little governability, let's say. 
you know, because when a decision has to be made, we have all these checks and balances, which are a very positive thing. What I believe we need is just not, not to go to the other extreme. We need to move in a little bit towards governability, where we have, for example, we have a system where we have 120 members uh, of parliament members of Knesset, and you know, they're supposed to do oversight on the government's work. We're about to have a government with, I believe, 36 ministers and something like 16 uh, deputy ministers. That's almost half of the Knesset. Now, if you're sitting in the Knesset three days a week, you're doing oversight on yourself. And it's, it's, it's just a very, very unwieldy system. Um, we're, we're, we're getting to the point where the Knesset is almost irrelevant. It's, it's a rubber stamp. What we need is we need a higher threshold. Perhaps we need to move to more, uh, a presidential system, something similar to the Americans. There is a very useful system. I believe they use it in Germany, uh, New Zealand, a few other places where it is somewhere between proportional representation, which we have in Israel, and first past the post system, which they have in the UK, uh, the US, et cetera, where basically you have a system where one party will be more powerful as opposed to our current system, where you have to build a coalition government with multiple parties, which any day can sit and say, okay, we don't agree with that, we're gonna leave the government, and then we'll run to elections. You know, because of that, we have revolving uh, door government, and we have very little, I would argue, becoming even less over the years, long-term strategic vision. And that's harmful when all you're thinking about is today and tomorrow. You're not thinking about what's going to happen in one or two years because you know that your government could fall. That's not going to help good governance. Um, so I definitely think that there's a lot that we can do. We can, you know, change the, the executive. We can make the, uh, the parliament more powerful. Um, but we really need to address this very, very seriously because, you know, the, as I said at the beginning, the year and a half that we've had of almost complete political paralysis could then be just the tip of the iceberg. And we really have far too many challenges ahead of us um, to just sit with a, with a system that's failed us for the last year and a half. We have to make changes, not just cosmetic changes. I believe very, very strong and robust changes uh, that allow us to enunciate long-term uh, strategic policies because they're absolutely essential uh, for Israel moving forward. Thank you so much. We've actually got quite a lot of interest going on in this webinar. Would you mind staying with us for another sure. 10 minutes? All yeah, right. sure. Great. Um, how is Israel reacting to or preparing for Iran's longer-range missiles and drones? Um, like, like we have for any... Uh, threat. We prepare our defensive ability, our offensive ability. And I'm, I'm not a military expert, so I, I couldn't tell the exact details, but Iran is seen as the number one existential threat by Prime Minister Netanyahu. He's been talking about, you know, every single time he speaks in the international arena, whether it's uh, at the UN, whether it's uh, the, the Joint Houses of Congress a number of years ago, you know, it's Iran, Iran, Iran. He sees Iran as the greatest threat. And there was talk uh, a number of years ago um, that there was, there was we, we were close to some sort of strike uh, on Iran's uh, nuclear facility. All I can tell you is if you look back into 1981, when uh, Iraq uh, was building nuclear weapons capability, uh, capability under uh, Saddam Hussein, Israel conducted an extremely daring mission which destroyed the Osirak uh, nuclear facility. 
uh, right under the noses of the Iraqis. And interestingly enough, when the US went into Iraq many years later, they thanked the Israelis, because you can imagine how difficult it would have been for the US to have entered Iraq if they were nuclear power, it basically wouldn't have happened. So Israel is shown in history that it's prepared to make very, very difficult. And Iran, you know, it will be an extremely difficult uh, situation. And Iran is not Iraq. Iran has multiple sites underground, some we may not even know about. I'm pretty confident that our intelligence, we know, if not all of what they're doing, the vast, vast majority of it. So I'm sure that we've built up uh, the capability of doing what's necessary when that, or if that day comes. But we hope the international community will be able to stop Iran because that's basically where the ball is at the moment in the international community. The US has shown that it's, uh, it's, it's prepared to push Iran but unfortunately, there's still a certain uh, uh, soft approach in the international community. And while there is that, Iran has its get out of jail free card. And uh, so that really has to be closed. Um, and that's really where the focus is at the moment on the diplomacy. That's why uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu brings it up at every single opportunity because, you know, no one wants to think about uh, the military option until absolutely all. Uh, diplomatic uh, possibilities have been exhausted. Thank you. Can you comment on how the integration of the Russian Jews is going specifically within the Harari Orthodox establishment? Um, if, if I understand this correctly, it's, I mean, these, these are two communities that, let's just put it mildly, do not see eye to eye on many issues. Um, the, the Russian Aliyah, the Russian immigration, the mass Russian immigration, over a million uh, Jews from the former Soviet Union uh, who arrived in Israel starting with the fall of the Iron Curtain um, up until this, this very day um, has been one of the most significant uh, events in Israel's history. You can actually see so much of where Israel is today as a result of this immigration, especially in high tech. You know, a lot of people argue that it was this that gave a, a, a major boost. Um, and you can see uh, Jews from the former Soviet Union, Russian-speaking Jews, um, in almost every facet of life. And, you know, their most high-level representative in politics was Viktor Liebman, who has held the position of Deputy Prime Minister, Defense Minister, Foreign Minister. So it's been, it's been a, a pretty successful uh, absorption. Um, there have been... And then there is uh, quite a lot of strain between this community and the ultra-Orthodox because many of the uh, Russian immigrants are either, let's just say under Jewish law, are not Jewish, or an even larger group who are just not religious. Um, whereas the ultra-Orthodox obviously want to, want to put a, a greater stress on religious observance in the public sphere. There's something in Israel called the status quo, which means that it's, it's the relationship between uh, religion and state, we don't have a separation of religion and state in Israel. It means that, you know, certain businesses are closed on the Sabbath, uh, certain levels, uh, when, you, when you get married, you have to do it under a religious institution, burial, etc., etc. So some would argue that the ultra-Orthodox have moved the needle on the status quo towards more greater observance, especially in the public sphere, and making conversion more difficult, marriage more difficult, proving someone's Jewishness uh, more difficult, whereas uh, the uh, Russian community is more about liberalizing that. 
uh, having worked with Avigdor Lehman for many years, I know he's not anti-religious, he's certainly not uh, looking to make Israel uh, a non-religious or you know, a, a, a state completely devoid of any sort of uh, Jewish tradition. He's a traditional guy, his wife is religious, his kids are religious. What he's looking for is to return to the status quo as it was in the 1980s, where there was a far more, let's just say, a progressive uh, look at the way uh, you know, uh, Jews would be treated uh, religiously, whether, whether it, as I said, it was uh, marriage, conversion, on, on rules of Sabbath, you know, the Russian community is very strong on opening up uh, public uh, transport on the Sabbath, which, which largely we do not have today. So the, there's a lot of tension, uh, especially politically amongst the two sort of, uh, the representatives of the two communities in Israeli politics. That's probably, some argue, and definitely there's something to it, that the roots of this political instability we've had a year and a half was simply because of this tension. I mean, this was one of the reasons why we don't even did not join that government after the first elections because of, actually that was to do with the Israeli army, the fact that the ultra-Orthodox weren't uh, joining in sufficient numbers, um, but then it became a much wider issue. And for the first time in quite a while, we had a number of elections where the issue of religion and state was really at the forefront. So you saw these communities battling uh, and stressing their viewpoints to the Israeli public uh, and probably strengthen both both parties. So this is certainly something that uh, we have to look for in the next few years because it's 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 there and it's going to come out again and again as one side tries to move the needle this way and the other one tries to move it that way. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Thank you. Earlier you were talking about how BDS only really seems to be within our school systems in the U.S. at least. Um, are you concerned about how this might affect future leaders in the U.S. going forward? Um, yes, there, there is there's certainly that worry. Um, you know, university campuses, I remember when I was in university and all of us who were in university, they were, you know, they're, they're bastions of progressive liberal uh, sort of ideologies, but that doesn't necessarily translate into later life. Um, so a lot of views that people hold at that age on, on university campuses, they fade as real life, you know, overtakes them. Uh, so the views on Israel are definitely, there definitely is something to be worried about because, you know, there's, uh, there's this movement amongst the BDS uh, towards something called intersectionality where they try and appropriate other minority groups, whether they are a black, uh, Latino, or uh, LGBTQ and basically say, come and, come and join us in our fight because our fight is related to your fight. And they've been relatively successful in that. Um, quite simply because, unfortunately, they use a lot of propaganda. You know, the state of Israel, we have to tell the truth. We're a state, we're a country, you know. Our story is, is we have a very powerful story, but at the end of the day, it's a complex story. The Palestinians show, you know, the Palestinian advocates of BDS, they, they show a very small snapshot, but unfortunately in a day where, you know, most of us are just used to getting a snapshot of the news of not being able to watch a YouTube video for more than six or seven seconds if it doesn't pique our interest. This is uh, an era which, is, which lends itself to Palestinian propaganda because of, it's, it's because of uh, the way that their propaganda is structured. Um, but I know that there are a lot of very good organizations worked with many of them that are fighting back. Um, 
against BDS, against the delegitimization of Israel. Um, but there's always a little worry. I mean, we see it in European or American politics that, you know, the more extreme uh, politicians on the left have certainly used the Israel-Palestinian issue as a sort of wedge issue. So that with Sanders, we saw that with Corbyn in the UK and others. Um, so we certainly don't want Israel to be a wedge issue. Uh, we want this bipartisan support, especially in the US. It has been eroding over the last few years, and that's probably the greatest threat to Israel. BDS, as I said, is not really a threat to Israel, but the lack of bipartisan support for Israel, or it's not a lack because it's still there, but there is a, there is a, a slow erosion. And that's something that we in Israel have to pay more attention to. And I, I believe we are starting to. Thank you. All right. Now the last question. Uh, he mentioned earlier, one, the lack of a definitive response regarding military to Hamas and Ga in Gaza. And two, the lack also of an official or legitimate government. Of course, there's been the caretaker government for the past year and a half. Are those two issues related? No, uh, quite simply, when we did have a fully functioning and strong government, our response was equal, equally weak. Um, the fact is we've had a prime minister who twice in a year has been chased off stage by Hamas rockets. You know, he were, went for talks somewhere in the south, I believe it was Ashkelon, maybe on both occasions. And Hamas, I guess, either got wind or maybe it was luck that they fired rockets at the area. So the bodyguards obviously, you know, throw him off stage and get him into a, a safe room. But the fact is, you know, he's just getting a taste of what hundreds of thousands of Israelis feel on a regular basis. I mean, two or three times a year, sometimes for days, sometimes for weeks. They sit in fear in their safe rooms. You know, in, in the morning, do you send your child to kindergarten, to school, knowing that there's a possibility rockets could be fired? And if rockets are fired, who do you grab first? Which kids? Do you, do you go to this school? Do you go to... I mean, these are the terrifying uh, realities of much of Israel. And it continues because Hamas is allowed to remain in power. It's, allo it's allowed to fire rockets at us and our response is relatively weak. We, you know, there's the sort of this cycle where they decide for whatever reason, sometimes just internal pressures, they're going to fire, you know, barrage of rockets at Israel. Israel then shoot some empty buildings and threatens Hamas that if they carry on, they're going to get a very strong response. That doesn't happen. The cycle continues itself until someone comes in and tries to force the ceasefire. And Israel, unfortunately, runs with uh, great impatience towards the ceasefire. And to have a ceasefire against an organization like Hamas sends such a bad message for us as we face many military uh, threats on many fronts. So I think that you know, Israel has to take a far more robust response and really defeat Hamas. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's been shown in the last few years, terrorist organizations can be defeated. ISIS was defeated. The Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka were defeated. This idea you can't defeat terrorist organizations, it's, it, there are examples where you can. So I think, you know, Israel has to take a more uh, robust uh, response. I'll, I'll just give you another example. When Victor Liebman became defense minister, he had met much of the uh, high, you know, high command uh, uh, brass sitting around the table. And one of the first questions he said is, what is the plan to defeat Hamas? And many of these people looked at each other. And basically the message was no one's ever asked us to even create one. 
And that's a remarkable, that's a remarkable state of affairs. But the state of Israel doesn't even have a plan to defeat Hamas. Yes, it has a plan to, to push it back, to make it, you know, the, the, to basically try and stop the rockets for a certain amount of time, but to defeat it, I mean, it, it, it was almost not in the lexicon. So we, as I said, we now have a new IDF chief of staff who's really talking a different language, is talking the language of victory, is talking the language of uh, defeating our enemies. So hopefully we're, we're going to see that. I hope we don't need to see that because that means that Hamas will not throw any of its rockets across us. Hezbollah will not threaten us, Iran. Unfortunately, the reality is that probably will happen sooner or later. Um, and we hope that the IDF uh, chief of staff is more than words and he'll put, uh, he'll put these plans into action. And, and I think that's the way that we'll return a very, very important level of deterrence back to Israel. Thank you. I'm so sorry, but your, your answer fell so solely into this next question. If Israel is attacked by a neighbor and seeks a clear victory, is Israel ready to keep any the territory won? Um, I, I, I mean, I don't think wars, wars are not really fought this way um, uh, as much as they were previously. I mean, the only neighbors really that are attacking us are Syria. And obviously, we, we already took the Golan Heights uh, in 67. And we've held on to it uh, ever since and even put, placed uh, Israeli sovereignty. That's the most important strategic point that was formerly part of Syria. So we already have that. Iran, you know, it's a major enemy, but we're not going in with an army to conquer territory there. Gaza, I don't think we'll see um, Israel permanently uh, retaking Gaza again. Um, so I don't think that's necessarily the way it will work. But as going back to the previous point is, we do need to send a message and we do need to, need to send a, a strong message because Israel cannot live under constant threat. No nation can, no nation should. Uh, so at one point, Israel certainly has to push for the defeat of some of its, uh, some of its uh, enemies in the region. I mean, that's just any nation in the world in history that's been threatened to a point that Israel is, takes the necessary steps to defeat them and to defeat the threat and to stop the other side's war aims. That's just the way it has been in history. And uh, Israel may unfortunately, or fortunately, depending where you look at it, have to take such steps in the future, but I don't see it necessarily uh, having anything to do with taking over territory. Thank you so much. We have come to the close of our webinar today. Mr. Perry, thank you again for taking the extra time to update Absolutely. us and speak. On Friday, we will be having a webinar at 1 p.m. Eastern with Dr. Raymond Stock that discussing, is the Trump administration anti-Islamist? Thank you again for joining us and have a great day.